This episode brought to you by Healthier You. Are you living the healthiest version of you? Hi, this is registered dietitian and Run Disney race announcer, Carissa Galloway, and I'm excited to share some information about the course I created. It's called Healthier You. In my talking and working with runners, they're always asking about ways to improve their health, nutrition, and for weight loss. I took everything I've learned as a registered dietitian and made it into this easy-to-navigate 12-week course. You're getting meal plans, you're getting nutrition education, you're getting recipes, and you're getting live monthly Q&A sessions with me where you can ask your personalized questions. We've had over 200 Healthier You participants this year, and so many of them are sharing great stories of success with how simple it is to use the program and how it's made huge improvements in their energy and nutrition choices. I'd love for you to join Healthier You, and you can use the code Jeff. J-E-F-F to save $175. You can go to GallowayCourse.com or find the link in the show notes and follow me on Instagram for more information at Carissa underscore G-Way. It was an amazing feeling. I was at the peak of my conditioning and everything was working just right. I had prepared for all of this. I was in the moment that I had prepared for. And so I was not under the duress that other people were. I mean, it, it wasn't wonderful to be in that hot, humid condition, running five something per mile, but I was ready to do it. The crowd perceived that there was only one place left and there were two runners that entered the stadium. So they were excited. They were cheering really both of us on. And they were shouting so loud, it was a fantastic experience. Today, Jeff recounts one of the most important days in his running career that really set up his lifelong goal of helping others accomplish their goals. Jeff retells the story of the 1972 U.S. Olympic marathon trials where he has a decision to make. Is he going to be an Olympian in one event or two? You can do it. Well, welcome, Jeff. So take us back, if you will, to where we left off as you just qualified for the U.S. Olympic team in the 10,000 meters. Yes, I achieved something that I never thought that I was going to be able to do. I came from last place in the 10K to finish second, to qualify, And I was exhilarated. It was an amazing feeling. However, there was a downside to that. The downside occurred just a few seconds later when my teammate Jack Batchelor, who was the founder of our club, the Florida Track Club, and about to make a sweep of Frank Shorter being first from our Florida Track Club and my finish of second, he was about to finish third. And we were about to be on the team together. But coming from behind at uh, about 40 yards to go was John Anderson from Eugene, Oregon. The crowd was behind him the whole way. They pulled him through and he became the third place finisher. But what was uh, also transpiring 
is that Jack was exhausted. He was weaving. He bumped into John Anderson as he went by, and an official disqualified Jack from the race. Now, I've never seen this happen or even heard of it happen in a 10K race, but it happened that day, and there was no recourse. And so as a result of that, the uh, our teammate wasn't going to be able to go unless, unless one week later, he finished third in the Olympic marathon. And uh, I knew that Jack was capable of doing that, but I realized as I pondered this whole situation within the 24 hours afterwards that I had a chance to really help him do that. And so that was the next item on the Olympic trials agenda. So Jack, had he had qualified for the marathon trials. He had. He had qualified for the trials, but he had really put his training into the 10K, and he really didn't think he was going to have to run the marathon. He thought for sure, because he was ranked number one or two in the country for three years. It was very unlikely that he would not finish. And of course, he still finished fourth, but the problem was he was disqualified. And uh, so we had to do something about that. I had to do something about it. And I was looking forward to the challenge. So how long after the finish of the 10K did you present this this idea to Jack? The next morning. We uh, decided uh, right after the race that we wouldn't go over any of the negatives that evening, but that we would meet the next morning for a run, as we usually did. So we got out there uh, on that run the next morning, and I'll have to tell you, I have had a number of glorious runs in Eugene in the morning through essentially the same course that we ran around the campus of the University of Oregon. Uh, but that one was really marred by what had happened the evening before with Jack not qualifying and also the fact that uh, it was darn hot there. Usually in Eugene, year-round, is very comfortable training weather. It wasn't at this period of time, very hot and humid. And so um, as we started our run, uh, it was Frank that really brought up the issue at hand. How can we all work together to help Jack qualify in the marathon one week later. And I volunteered that I had used a plan uh, that could help someone who hadn't run the distance of the marathon before uh, recently. Jack had certainly run marathons, but when I quizzed him, he had only run 17 miles within the last month and a half. And at that level, a 17-miler, when racing a marathon, usually produces a pretty bad wall situation. So um, I explained that in the Boston Marathon in 1971, the year before, I had only had about 17 miles as a long run. So I purposely went out slow, and I worked my way up from about... Uh, 
50th or 60th in the race up to 11th. Uh, and I just uh, realized at that point that that was the smartest way to run a marathon. And I've been doing, I had been doing it ever since. And uh, I had run about 10 marathons in the last two years, and it worked every single time. So Jack and Frank bought into it. Uh, Frank uh, threw me some questions because uh, Jack and Frank were front, front runners, and uh, they weren't used to this come-from-behind strategy, but they bought into it. And uh, throughout the rest of the week, every day, we were out there for a run, and every day we were fine-tuning the pace uh, and what we were looking for for uh, our placing as the miles went by, and uh, and we came up with a plan. So you said you had a week uh, between the 10K and the marathon, and that's not really how it's scheduled now. You know, in the for the 2020 games, there were maybe five, six months in between the trials for the marathon and the tri- and the, the Olympic marathon. Um, or even the trials for the marathon for the U.S. and the trials for track for the U.S. So why was it done that way in 72? Well, it was Bill Bowerman. Uh, Bill Bowerman, the coach of the University of Oregon, was also uh, the Olympic coach for 1972. He was our Olympic coach. And he determined that the schedule of the trials should be the same schedule as the Olympics. So you could tell whether people who were doubling up or trying to triple on various events would be able to do so. And so that's the way it went. And uh, as a result, we just followed the, the schedule, which in Munich was uh, the 10K final and the marathon were one week apart. Now, Bowerman was given tremendous criticism for that. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were very few people that supported him. But uh, he believed, and Bill is one of those who once he takes a stand, that's it. That's, that's the way it is. And uh, he would not waver. He would not uh, even discuss it. He would listen to criticism, but he was dead set on doing this. And uh, the... Uh, the number of athletes and coaches and officials that criticized him is the most criticism I've ever seen of any distance uh, coach. But uh, the proof is in the pudding, and as the results came out later, uh, and I will, of course, reveal that in the story, you'll see that uh, there were some good reasons behind Bowerman's strategy. So back to Jack, uh, you obviously were kind of primed to run the marathon and, you know, as your shape, um, as the shape you were in, you were probably in a good position to qualify in the marathon so you could qualify in two events. Why did you feel this urge that you needed to help Jack in this situation? I intuitively knew uh, that I was a little in over my head at the international level. I had never run in an international event. And so I I knew that I could be very competitive in the marathon. Uh, 
And yet, I knew that I would get more inner satisfaction out of helping a good friend than I would helping myself get into the Olympic marathon. Uh, and I also believed that I should, in going to such a uh, an amazing event like the Olympics, I should focus on one event or the other. Now, if I really could have chosen, I would have chosen the marathon. There was no doubt about that. However, here was my really only chance to help my really good friend, Jack Batchelor, who had helped me in a number of ways. And uh, I will have to tell you that over the years, I have never had any second guesses about that. So was the plan for Frank and Jack to stay with you through the first part of the race? Or talk a little bit about that. Well, that's a very good uh, point to bring up because Frank really had his own vision of what he needed to do. And uh, Frank was already looking at the Olympics. I mean, he he knew realistically that even though he had qualified first for us in the 10K, he did not have the foot speed that most of his competition in the Olympics would have. And so he knew that uh, he was probably best suited for the marathon. He was already looking at a medal. I mean, he, he, he really had that uh, envisioned. And so with that in mind, he was looking at the Olympic trials as a test for that and, and to really give it how he would run a competitive race in the Olympics. Now, the other item was that uh, Frank was a very good friend with Kenny Moore from Oregon. And Kenny had run a lot of international marathons and was ranked fairly high for several years. And uh, Kenny uh, really gave Frank this intro into the world of international marathoning. And, uh, and Frank was just looking forward to another race with Kenny. They were a dynamic duo. So he, um, he played this into our strategy for the Florida Track Club by describing how he could lead the other runners out at a very fast pace on what was predicted to be a very hot day, which actually did turn out. And that would set people up for dropping back so that we could pass them in the race. And so that was our strategy. Frank pushing the pace at the front, burning people out, and then Jack and I starting way back at the back and then moving up. So it was true team tactics. It was. Oh. It it actually uh, mimicked what a lot of the Kenyan runners do today. They do work as groups. Now, they don't run as slow as Jack and I did. <laughs> so what was happening in the few days leading up to, to the trials marathon? Well, it was mainly a case of 
getting the run in every morning uh, and, and then filling up the rest of the day. And it was a very exciting time because this was the first Olympic trials in Eugene. But it was the perfect place for it because more than any other city in the U.S., extremely high percentage of the people in the Eugene area were not just aware of the Olympic trials being there, but they embraced it. And they were really, the fans were just totally into the runners and would study the newspapers every day and know the individual runners and cheer them on and and actually say specific things about what runners had done. It made you feel so good that they really knew what you were doing. So um, as the week went on, there were all types of uh, informal things where you would uh, walk into a restaurant, a bar, and people buy you drinks, and uh, they talk about the trials. And these are folks that in other cities would just be football or basketball fans, whatever. Um, but what I did through most of my free time, uh, I would go to uh, the Nike store called the Athletic Department, which was managed by my best friend, Jeff Hollister. Uh, Jeff and I uh, had uh, known one another since 1966, and we uh, had uh, stayed in touch on a lot of different projects, including both of us being in the Navy and having the same uh, sister ship and uh, tying up alongside one another several times. Uh, and uh, Jack, uh, Jeff was uh, conducting a lot of innovative promotions because at the time Nike did not have a lot of money. And so he taught me a lot and I was a gopher. Um, I would just show up as an unpaid volunteer in the store and uh, Jeff had no hesitancy to tell me what to do. <laughs> I mean, if it were cleaning the toilets or if it were taking a, a bunch of shoes over to the warehouse and back or if it was uh, taking some of the special project, the secret project he had. Now, that was to make a waffle sole shoe, the very first shoe of its kind in which a patented sole uh, that had projections on the bottom uh, was made. And it had to be made by hand because they didn't have time to do it on a factory basis. So uh, a local shoe cobbler who was actually quite sophisticated uh, did the work on that. And I did my share of uh, shuffling various supplies over to him and then taking the shoes back. And uh, I even took one of the prototypes, the final prototype, uh, over to Bowerman because Jeff, one, did not have time to do it and quite honestly told me that he was afraid to go over and show it to Bowerman because he knew he would explode because there's, he always, Bowerman always found something wrong with what he did. And uh, so I did take it over to Bowerman and... Uh, he wasn't pleased with it, and he sort of exploded. But in any case, uh, the uh, 
the whole experience was what set me up to open my store, Fidipides, later on, because Jeff introduced me to the inner workings of how you run a store and how you coordinate a lot of crazy things going on all at once. Were these shoes that they thought people might run in the marathon or just producing them for later? Well, these were mainly for people running the marathon. And uh, Jeff, you know, he, he was working off a limited budget. And Jeff always exceeded his budget. You know, ask for forgiveness later. That, that was his philosophy. But he found that if you put shoes on someone that they thought they could run well in, that there would be an extended usage of that shoe. So he was really projecting people taking those shoes home and then using them for the next year or two, giving tremendous advertising because nobody else had a shoe like that. Now, the problem was, because they were handmade, there were things that unraveled on that shoe, and, and they did. Uh, and also, giving people a shoe to run in a race less than a week away is always a chancy thing. I tried the shoes on, and I ran one workout on the track on them, and unfortunately I got a, a couple of small blisters, and I realized I really shouldn't be doing that in the marathon, even though I wanted to. So I ran in a different Nike shoe uh, during the trials. But there were a lot of people that ran, a lot of runners in the marathon that ran in that shoe. Uh, a few of them had some problems with it. One of them was a friend of mine from Tallahassee who I trained with for a couple of years before the Olympic trials named Ken Meisner. And uh, Ken decided he was going to run in the shoot. And uh, I didn't see him finish. I mean, I was at the finish line walking, talking to people as they finished and so forth and cheering them on. And Ken wasn't there and surprised me. Well, I saw him about half an hour later. He sort of limps up. And uh, I said, what happened? He says, blisters. And he looked, he pointed down to his shoes. And he said, somebody told me that if I put Vaseline on the shoe, that it would prevent blisters. So I looked down at him. And these prototype shoes, in order to vent heat, had holes punctured in the top of the um, of the upper of the shoe, and that that it worked pretty well for venting the uh, the heat from the foot. Uh, but out of those little holes from Ken Meisner's shoe were worms of Vaseline. He had put way too much Vaseline, and you know when you're dealing with a new thing that close without a chance to really try these out. There are problems like that that happen. Were these the moon shoes that, that are yes, talked about? Yes, those are called the moon shoe because there were shoes that uh, astronauts had used on the moon that had a similar look to it. So set the stage for that morning in Eugene for the marathon. Well, 
Um, we woke up uh, and, of course, didn't run because the race was in the afternoon. And uh, it was definitely hot right away. We knew that the predictions were going to be on target. It was, there were very few clouds in the sky. It was just sunshine all day. Temperature got up to, I believe, about 95 degrees in the afternoon. And then it started cooling off a little bit. So um, we go over to the track and uh, the track was wet and it hadn't rained. So uh, I asked one of the officials what was going on and said, well, Bowerman told us to wet down the track with a fire hose. So they broke out the fire hose, which the fire marshal didn't like at all, and wet the track down. And it was steaming at the time when they did that, uh, when we arrived. So we start uh, doing our little warm-up, and we're jogging around and uh, talking, just Frank and Jack and I. And uh, it was... At first, we were feeling the tension. It was one of those situations where uh, I, you know, you just didn't know whether you should say something. But <clears throat> I sort of broke the ice. We just sort of chatted. Uh, and what I remember most about my interaction with Jack was uh, I was mainly putting my hand on his shoulder because uh, I knew that he had reservations about the going out slowly. And so it was my, my uh, outward uh, affirmations that I really wanted to present to him to help set him up for, you know, we can do this. <clears throat> so what was the overall race strategy? It was to go out at a pace that was sustainable, uh, and, and we, we figured that with the heat of about 90 degrees, that the qualifying, the third place, would probably be around 218. And, you know, Frank and Jack were the mathematicians on this. They, they really looked over other races that had been hot and so forth. So anyway, we were working off that as our time to shoot for. Uh, I knew that one, people were going to go out fast, and therefore Jack and I would probably have to go a little slower than that pace in order to not be in too much congestion. And so we went out a little slower pace than that. Uh, and then um, the plan after the first few miles was to simply pick people off and to try to stay on that pace or at least try to be at that pace by 15 miles. That was definitely a uh, landmark that I had. I want to be on the pace at 15 miles. So the gun goes off and I'm guessing Frank shoots to the front. Was it, was it hard for Jack, I guess, especially to not go with him? It was extremely hard. And as soon as 
I, I saw Jack, I noticed Jack glancing ahead at Frank, and, and I noticed that he would start lunging forward when he did that and, st and picking up the pace. And so I had to uh, calm him down and I had to keep doing that for the next five miles or so. Uh, and several times he really started to take off. So I quickly caught up with him and literally grabbed the back of his shirt as a gesture and uh, as that uh, enforcement technique. And it worked. It worked. And he didn't, he, he made a couple of statements. Uh, he didn't like the strategy at all. He, he didn't say that, that it wouldn't work, but he said, I, I don't like doing this. And, and so um, we went through uh, the first mile in about a hundredth place. There was a guy along the course, a friend of mine, who took it upon himself to do the counting. And he he counted and he said, you guys are about 100th place. And then uh, by five miles, we had moved up to 60th, 61st, somewhere around in there. And uh, so we were constantly, after the first mile, picking people off and uh, weaving between them. Although... You know, there were only a hundred and maybe sixty or so people in the race. It, it it wasn't a large race like the New York Marathon or anything. So we weren't weaving between huge crowds, but there were clumps of runners and so forth. Um, and so we kept clicking people off and um, we got through 15 miles and... Uh, I looked at the watch, and sure enough, I was only six seconds off what we had projected for what we needed, and things were going great. Were there was there anything you were doing during during the run to kind of take your mind off things, take Jack's mind off things? Yeah, you know, I uh, got a lot from Jack through. The years in the Florida Track Club because whenever we would run together, Jack would always have a story about uh, some runner or some experience that he had had. And uh, I latched onto this because, again, I had never run in an international race. And so I was living through him. I was getting what he did in races and, and how he had downturns and, and rebounded and all these things. So um, I started asking Jack for uh, uh, stories on individuals during the race, and he responded. So, you know, I got some good gossip on uh, a, a lot of the runners that I was running against. So 15 miles, you're, you're pretty much right on pace. Do you have any idea of what place you're in at that point? 15 miles, we were in sixth place, I believe. I believe. Um, quite honestly, I haven't, I've got the sheets and, and uh, this, this really helped me uh, prepare for this podcast because I've still got the sheets of who 
came by which mile markers and so forth. But I believe we were in sixth place at 15. So did you know what place you're in or just looking back at the sheets, you now know, or you, you know, knew a few hours later what place you're in, but at the, when you were running, did you know? That's a, a good question because, uh, today that the, the placing and everything is very well known. Everybody knows that the data is really good and it's displayed out there. It wasn't back then. Uh, so we'd go through a mile marker and I often would ask almost every mile marker, the volunteers, what place we were in. And some of the groups, nobody would know. Um, but in most of the others, there was a difference of opinion as to which place we were in. And so, um, but uh, we had a, as I remember, a consensus at 15 miles. Uh, to be honest with it, I can't remember whether it was six, but I, that's what uh, images on my mind. And were there clocks at these mile markers? How were you given splits or how did you know? There weren't clocks. They were reading the times out from stopwatches. That was the state of the art back then. And I know later in a race, it gets difficult to do math and different things. Did you, had you planned out kind of at each mile what you needed to be at and just memorize that? Or how did you, how do you know? I had some of the key splits literally written down on my arm. Uh, I, I wrote it down in an indelible pen. Um, the other sensation and sort of uh, general observation about this whole experience is that I had spent two years training 140 miles a week in Florida under hot, humid conditions. I was fully ready for this type of a race a hot race. Um, two years before that, I had spent most of my time living in tropical conditions in the Philippines, off Vietnam, and also uh, in uh, Hawaii. And, and so I'd had five years about of really good hot weather conditioning. Uh, secondly, I had had two years of just excellent hard training to get into shape, and I had trained to run a faster pace than we were running that day, and we were purposely running slow because running in Florida and racing in Florida, you know that you will hit the wall a lot sooner if you don't slow down from the beginning, and uh, that's why we were moving up steadily, and that's why Jack uh, never hit a crushing wall. <laughs> Um, and I'll tell you about the wall in just a second, but uh, it was an amazing feeling. I was at the peak of my conditioning, and everything was working just right. I had prepared for all of this. I was in the moment that I had prepared for, and so I was not under the duress that other people were. I mean, it, it wasn't wonderful to be in that hot, humid condition, running five something per mile, but I was ready to do it. And, uh, and Jack was not. And, and so 
as we progressed mile by mile, we picked off two other runners, and at mile 21, we passed this guy that we had seen far in the distance for six, seven miles, and we had crept up on him, and, uh, and we finally passed him into third place. And so that was, you know, a real plus, and then it was a source of concern for Jack, because once we passed into third, Jack realized that he, first of all, he was really exhausted, but he still had five miles to go, and he didn't know whether he was going to make it, and he actually told me that on several times during those last five miles, and I assumed the role then of cheerleader, tell, just telling him that he was going to do it. Uh, secondly, I was the lookout to keep looking behind to see if anybody was coming up on us. And then to divert him to stories and whatever else I could get to occupy his mind to, to come on through. And then we also had uh, instances where it just seemed appropriate to not say anything. Uh, and, and you have to learn how to figure out when to say something and when to not say something. But Jack was hurting. He was uh, hurting really badly. Uh, but because of his prior conditioning and the fact that we went out much, much slower than he had ever run in a marathon, he was able to keep going even though he was exhausted. So approaching Hayward Field... You you guys were still in third place, and Frank and Kenny were ahead of you, um, basically in the place that you kind of knew they would, they should be at least. Uh, so was anybody gaining on you? Is anybody close in your lookout position? I kept looking, and uh, I knew that during the the two miles previous, uh, the two, the last two miles of the course, that there wasn't anybody that was gaining significantly. And uh, I have developed a good sense of relative speed of runners. And uh, I pride myself. I've, back then I was thought that I was as good as anybody in that particular category. And I felt assured, and I told Jack, Jack, just keep going the way you're going, and nobody's going to get us. And uh, he also had a couple of statements at that time to the effect, I hope I can. But he was doing it, and I knew that he had the pizzazz to be able to keep going, even when he got a little further exhausted because I'd seen him do that on races and in workouts too. Uh, so as we approached that stadium, uh, Frank and Kenny had entered the stadium and I didn't really know how far ahead they they were, but the crowd started really cheering and, and that lifted our spirits. And uh, and that gave Jack a boost. He definitely picked up the pace. So we picked up the pace and then entered the stadium for that last lap around. And 
that reception that we got as we entered was the most incredible crowd experience that I've ever had. And what was happening is the crowd perceived that there was only one place left and there were two runners that entered the stadium. So they were excited. They were cheering really both of us on. And they were shouting so loud that I almost still have eardrums that were damaged from it. It was a fantastic experience. So what were your thoughts coming into that final stretch? I had all types of things flashing through my head. And, uh, I, you know, I was, I was literally the only one in that whole stadium that knew how that race was going to turn out. <laughs> it was uh, the really position of utmost power and running that I had ever had. Uh, Jack was exhausted. I was feeling great. I mean, yes, I was tired from the marathon, but I'd run well within myself. And uh, I was clearly better heat trained than Jack was. And so uh, I could have run extremely fast down that last stretch, but I was glowing from the feeling that I was helping my good friend and also the founder of our club, the guy who had mentored me in so many things about running and particular competitive, uh, particularly competitive running. So what happened right at the finish line? So Jack and I were really enjoying the fact that there was nobody in sight. We were running down the final yards of this race. The crowd was going wild. And, uh, and there was Frank just ahead facing us as we were approaching the finish line. And he was actually sort of orchestrating things a little bit. But at the time, Jack and I were running pretty much stride for stride. And Frank yelled at me to remind me, now you've got to back up at the finish line. <laughs> and so I, uh, I backed off my pace a little bit. I sort of glided towards the finish line. And Jack and I came across. Uh, as it turned out, uh, the times were identical, but the place was different because I was back a few inches from Jack. And uh, Jack was given the official third place finisher. And so we crossed that finish line. We walked a little bit. We celebrated with Frank. And it was just joyous. It, it was just a, an amazingly joyous feeling. And then we hit the, uh, the steeplechase pit to cool off. Did Jack say anything to you that you remember? He was, uh, there wasn't any uh, zinger or, or, you know, statement. He was clearly exhausted. He was just so joyful. He thanked me. He uh, also said uh, that I, uh, I didn't know that I could do this. And... Uh, and, and thoughts like that. But uh, he, was, 
he was actually joyous, but, but sort of low-key and sort of humble about qualifying. Ever had any thoughts about what you could have done in the marathon in Munich if you were to have taken that third spot? You know, I uh, believe that second-guessing things like that uh, is not productive. Uh, and so, no, I've, I've never really done that. The only statement that I can make is that it was, again, warm and humid in Munich. Jack really uh, doing the best he could, but clearly I was a better marathoner, and I would have done better than Jack, but I don't know how far up I would have gotten. Uh, but I, I just have to say it, it was, despite all of the ups and downs, of Munich, which I will talk about in a later podcast, it was just a wonderful experience to be a part of it. So what did you take from this experience in the trials? I realized that the focusing on what you want to do is the most important thing. And then developing the desire to put that into action. And I had the help of these two great teammates of mine, Frank Shorter and Jack Batchelor. Uh, in different ways, we supported one another. And uh, it wasn't always amicable. Uh, Frank and Jack and I had a relationship that when we thought one another was wrong about something, we would tell one another. And, and, and it was always uh, received with respect. Now, we may not do what the other says, but, but we respected one another. And so the teamwork was really something that you don't see a lot in distance running. But we had it, and we benefited from that. And then... The overall experience of the Olympic trials for me was that it's total, it totally changed my opinion about what I wanted to do in life. I suddenly realized that I had inside of me some strength and some abilities to do things that I didn't think were possible, and to work harder than I ever thought that I would be capable of doing. And, uh, and that set me on not just what I wanted to do for Munich and looking towards the next Olympics in Montreal and, and other world-class events, which why I was fortunately able to do. But it also set me up for looking at what I wanted to do in life. And one of the thoughts that hit me as I drove the long trip back to Atlanta from Eugene right after that was, how could I help others feel the exhilaration of finishing these races and even more so the training to be able to finish races like this. 
the average person, could this be possible? The seed of that was planted then. And next time, I want to talk about what happened in Munich and the people, the places, and the events. So stay tuned. This has been the You Can Do It podcast with Jeff Gallagher. And talk a little bit about Bowerman's decision to make the trials the same program as the Olympic program. Yeah, he was given incredible criticism. And uh, even once the people who complained, a lot of officials started complaining to the USOC, they even threatened to fire him and all this sort of stuff. Um, And... uh, and Bowerman's comment, at least to one of the ugly officials, was, go ahead, it'll really simplify my life. But the bottom line is, uh, out of all of that turmoil, the person that comes out winning that whole situation was Bill, Bill Bowerman. He made it happen to not only show that our runners could do the double, but do it better than any country has ever done. We had a first place finish, a fourth place finish, and a ninth place finish. No other country has ever done as well before or since. Bill was right.